0: Welcome to New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm Sarah Patterson, and today I'm speaking with Gary Adler about his new book, Empathy Beyond U.S. Borders, The Challenges of Transnational Civic Engagement. Welcome to the show, Gary. Thanks. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Absolutely. Um, I've been at Penn State. I'm just entering my fifth year here in the sociology and criminology department. But the book goes back to uh, where I did my training. I got my PhD at the University of Arizona. Um, It was something a little bit of a second career for me, which is important only in the sense that um, the topic that I ended up uh, writing on for my dissertation. And that became this book um, was something I was a little familiar with before I had um, in college myself and then. As um, working at a service learning office at a small college, um, as an as a early job in my career, I had actually been partly in charge of basically travel trips, um, trips that were either for credit or not credit to different places, um, and had seen these sorts of things happen before. And, and so that was part of the inkling I had in graduate school, is like, maybe I'll pursue this as a topic.
0: So, can you start us off by setting the stage and sort of giving us some quick background on the concepts and ideas explored in your book? So, for instance, you start off with a Bruce yeah. Springsteen concert yes. right where he asks yeah. if you're ready to be transformed. So what do you mean by transformation mm-hmm. in in these other kind of ideas that you bring up throughout the book?
1: Yeah, so that was um that was really late in the process that um, <laughs> I came to that as the way to open my book. One of the key puzzles in my research. so th- so the book is basically about, um, what's called immersion trips, um, which, uh, which happen all, um, all across the United States. Um, my focus was on trips that go outside the United States. These um, sorts of trips are wildly popular amongst universities, amongst um, churches, synagogues, mosques, um, amongst seminaries, uh, you name it. If there's a civic institution that's about kind of forming or educating people, they probably offer a trip like this. Um, So, I dove into a site um, in Arizona, which we'll talk a little bit more about, Um, but in the course of the research, something that um, I came back to again and again and again was that the people who um, encourage these trips, so professors, teachers, college uh, staff, the people who run these trips, which are um, basically run by nonprofits scattered uh, throughout the world, and the people who go on these trips are all pretty convinced that these trips, quote unquote, work. Um, and a lot of the language that surrounds these trips is, is a language of transformation. A lot of it is about kind of self-transformation as a way of, of trying to kind of transform the world. Um, and so I, there was a moment where I had already written a first draft of the book. I was lucky to have landed um, tickets to the boss in State College, and the arena was packed. State College is not a huge place, so people had come from all over and packed arena. And um, he can he and his band can play like no other. And he yells out at one point, "Are you ready to be transformed?" And the place goes crazy. Um, but knowing a little bit about Bruce Springsteen, I actually knew he, I think, believed that request. And I think a lot of people, including myself in the audience, believed that that was possible, which as a sociologist is a little crazy, right? To think a three hour concert could somehow rise to the level of what the term transformation alludes to. Um, but it struck me that, that my book, the research I had been doing was on a similar question of how can something transform people and how does it transform people? Yeah.
0: So some of the listeners will be interested in the methodology of your book. So I yep. was hoping you could briefly introduce us to BorderLinks mm-hmm. and how the general methodology of your book works.
1: Yeah, sure. So the organization I landed on studying um, was partly out of convenience, but then I found out later it was actually a wonderful um, choice. So the organization I was with, um, I traveled with, and the travelers that I looked at was a group called BorderLinks. They're still in existence today. And a matter of fact, they've actually been in existence since the late 1980s. Um, they're located in Tucson, Arizona. And what they are and what I call them in the book is that they're an immersion travel broker. What this means is they're um, an organization um, that that basically hosts people to come into the Southern Arizona community and to learn about life on the u s Mexico border, and particular when I was studying them, to learn uh, about undocumented immigration, what causes it, um, what uh, what sorts of public policies might be connected to it, um, and and why immigrants uh, or the immigrants experience um, themselves. What was fascinating about the organization was it actually provided kind of a perfect theoretical test of what A lot of supporters of immersion travel uh, encourage as the quote-unquote correct way to actually do immersion travel. As you can imagine, this is a field that has a fair amount of controversy attached to it because there are forms of immersion travel like um, short-term mission travel that in some people's minds are about kind of paternal relations and going to try and change or convert people overseas. Now, the reality is is that very few trips ever do something like that, even those trips that are organized um, by evangelical organizations ever actually do anything like that. That's a story for another day. Um, But what BorderLinks was, why it was kind of theoretically perfect, is because it specifically said it was not trying to change people um, in Mexico or along the border. Instead. The, its only mission was try and to transform people that traveled to the border from other parts of the United States and the way it did this is it it overtly act, tried to exclude kind of charitable or paternalistic relationships so travelers coming to border links were really there to learn from the experience and from talking with people they met they weren't there to go and do service projects or help build an orphanage or anything like that that um, some listeners might be familiar with. The other thing, the other reason why it was, or two other reasons why it was theoretically great. First, it had a long binational history. So it came out of the sanctuary movement. We hear a lot about sanctuary today and the news sanctuary cities and things like that. But um, a lot of this, a lot of that uh, language roots to the 1980s when groups along the U.S.-Mexico border, specifically mostly religious groups, were trying to take care of um, Central American immigrants who were fleeing various versions of dirty wars uh, in Central America. And so Links is really the only organization left from that period. The sanctuary movement was more or less successful in raising the plight of Central Americans and and getting some refugee status and then a lot of the activists and organizations kind of closed but Borderlinks links kind of found a way over time to try and continue raising awareness um, about what was going on at the border uh, and so i encountered them uh, geez it must have been t- really 20 years almost more than 20 years after um, their work started um, so i, I kind of tripped upon Borderlinks, but theoretically are a wonderful place um, uh, to kind of pursue some of my questions. Oh, and I think you asked about methodology. Is that right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So uh, I took a pretty, um, what nowadays is called multi-method approach, which means I um, was realizing that the sorts of questions I had couldn't uh, be answered by just one method or the other, but required a whole bunch of methods. So Basically, I ended up with three methods. The first was um, over the course of a year, I did um, a couple hundred longitudinal surveys. So these are surveys that would be done with travelers before they came to Borderlinks. And then I would do the survey with travelers a couple weeks after the Borderlinks border trips with a short survey right at the end of their trip. The idea was to try and track um, whether there were changes in travelers and things like their feelings about immigration and immigrants, um, their ideas about uh, the causes of immigration and immigration policy, and then their actions or behaviors around um, the topics they had learned. So that was one method. The second method was um, I did interviews with um, travelers who I had traveled with. So my third method was um, ethnography. I sampled six different groups from different types of organizations, either churches, what I call secular colleges, or religious colleges, or seminaries. So four different types of organizations, actually. And then I traveled with these travelers for the whole time they were on a Borderlinks trip. I showed up at the airport. I said hi. I, I traveled with them in the vans. I slept in the same spaces they were with. And then I said goodbye to them at the airport. Um, so I have this really kind of rich, um, ethnographic information about what immersion travel looks like. And then I interviewed all of these people or almost all of these people about six months after their trip to get a sense of what the trip still meant to them and how their life may or may not have changed since the trip.
0: So then you move into breaking down what you learned, um, in, in relation to education and action um, and specifically around the pedagogy of BorderLinks. So can you tell us more about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, one thing I, I should kind of set up about um, about the book and the research that will to help to make sense of BorderLinks' approach is that um, I begin the book by trying to make sense of why the heck um, churches, synagogues, seminaries, universities spend so much time and effort sending people far away from their homes to learn about something it's a little kind of paradoxical that they do this because all these organizations have lots of ways they can inform people say through books or documentaries what have you they don't have to send people abroad and what i realize is that sometime sometime in the early 1990s right around the fall of the soviet union and this kind of upswelling of talk about kind of civil society and civic engagement was also a moment where the travel infrastructure of the, of the globe really matured. And it became possible to send people to all sorts of places to kind of, quote unquote, learn on their own. Uh, and so the book is really set up to think about what, what's so different or so great about learning um, firsthand versus learning secondhand. So is all the investment, ideological and economic, in sending people into experience, is it kind of worth it? Or should we encourage um, this sort of uh, awareness raising to stop? For hundreds of years in Western history, it was just elite people that got to travel and kind of see with their own eyes. But now, um, at least in the United States, It's lots of people that can do this. So at BorderLinks, they had a very particular way that they wanted um, to accomplish this. They linked together ideas from liberation theology, which is a movement that arose in Central and South America in the 1960s that tried to incorporate some critical social social analysis, some of it Marxist-inspired into uh, understandings of the political and economic lives of poor people throughout Central and South America. Um, At the same, about the same time, there was a transformation in uh, formal educational methods in South America, especially led by Paulo Freire, uh, well known through his famous book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And so what Borderlinks had done coming out of the 1980s is they had to try to hang on to these very particular ideals about what education is and how education could lead to action. And they promoted the idea that education needed to be about self-discovery, that it needed to be it needed to occur through direct engagement, and that it needed to happen through um, dialogue, within yourself, with other people in your community, and then with other people that might have truth to share that you don't know about. Um, And their, their, um, their pedagogy was that if you went through a process of informal education like that, then how could you not but be moved into acting on that New, that new knowledge, but also that new moral responsibility. So they they have a pretty coherent and, and often articulated vision of um, kind of education for social responsibility. And they were convinced, as uh, were people in various movements like liberation theology and the sanctuary movement, they were convinced, especially that if you could take elite or removed people um, and bring them into context where they're exposed to social injustice and and obvious social suffering, they thought that could have a profound effect on people and transform, if you will, regular middle Americans towards actually caring about and doing something on behalf um, of the issues they were focused on.
0: So this sort of ties back to the methodology question, but the time when you are doing your research is kind of an interesting time just in general. Um, so you mentioned that while you're studying this group, there, the issues they tackle become more complex. Um, so what kind of changes did you see and how did that um, play into what you found?
1: Yeah, so right uh, right as I moved to Arizona uh, in the mid-2000s was the beginning of um, evidence and awareness That the United States border policy was having what seemed like unintended effects, but actually might have been intended effects. And let me say something else about that. In the 1990s were the beginning of kind of the militarization of small sections of the border, like in El Paso and San Diego, where you have, um, for example, the border wall get longer and get higher and you start to have much more intensive patrolling Lights, aerial uh, reconnaissance, sensors on the ground, things like this, to really try and provide physical disincentive from people crossing the border. Which, of course, um, the border border crossings had happened in large numbers for long stretches of the U.S. history. It wasn't really until the 1950s that there began to be controls to try and stop border border crossing between the United States. Um, and Mexico in particular. So by the mid-2000s, these intensive militarization of the border had, at least in southern Arizona, basically made it impossible to cross in populated areas and to quickly be able to connect with um, resources that would basically keep people alive. So by the mid-2000s, dead bodies are showing up with regularity in what's known as the Sonoran Desert. That's the the desert region um, uh, of Southern and Southeastern Arizona abutting into Mexico. And in Tucson at that time, in reaction to that, you have kind of a, a reconstitution of an activist community that had been dormant for maybe about 15, 20 years since the end of the sanctuary movement. And you have a huge amount of not only awareness raising, about people dying in the desert, but you now start to have activist groups that are going out into the desert to leave water uh, for people who are crossing or to to try and aid people who are in medical distress as they are crossing. And this, this leads to all sorts of still continuing court cases about humanitarian aid and about um, whether those policies, uh, whether the deaths that they were uh, Causing to happen were or um, unintended, or really, or really whether they were intended because it was a way to really ratchet up the cost of immigration and try and stop it from happening. And so the organization I was studying found itself in a new era. They had been they had spent kind of a decade doing a lot of education about globalization and um, and trying to kind of focus on economic forces that were kind of beyond the border. And now um, their attention really really focused and turned to what was happening literally in their backyard. So people um, bodies are, are found within a day's walk of downtown Tucson, and the Mexican border is really only 40 miles away from there. So the problem though, for the organization was it became a little bit more tricky for them to talk about the forces that were responsible uh, for this. They would talk about. Uh, agricultural reform in Mexico and maybe how policies had sent people northward. They would talk some about border militarization. But in talking about all these things, the forces that were causing immigrants to come kind of were more removed. Whereas in the 1980s, it was very clear it was Central American wars that were driving Central American refugees northward. In some ways, the mid 2000s, had returned to almost an old story about the relationship between the United States and Mexico in that there had always been economic give uh, give and take and border crossing. And so in some ways that it ha- had returned, but in a new moment of, re- of real heightened security at the border, as well as nativism within the United States. And so the border, the, the organization kind of found itself trying to figure out, what to do um, with its travelers to make them aware of this stuff.
0: So next you move into chapter three, which is where you tackle the call, uh, what you call the problems of finding truth through travel. So I really like this table you have on page 77, it's table two for anybody who buys the book, um, where you break this down. So here you talk about what you call cultural fractures, and can you start us um, off by telling us about what you label a cultural fracture that you label whack-a-mole specifically.
1: Yeah, sure. So you can tell by this point in writing, I was starting to have a lot of fun trying to make sense (laughs) of everything that I had seen and heard. So a cultural fracture as I defined it uh, is basically the difference between an organizational ideal and the ability or the attempts of um, an organization to put those ideals into practice. In some ways, this sort of approach to understanding organizations is kind of bread and butter sociology. You can go all the way back to, to Michel's argument about the iron law of oligarchy, that um, any organization over time may tend to wanna to bureaucratize itself. That's a one type of a way of looking at this disjuncture between organizational ideals and what they actually do. What I found at at the level of looking at the organization I was at was that they had these really, as I call, kind of beautiful organizational ideals that uh, I framed through three terms, see, think, and act. They thought that you could bring people to the border and that you could uh, not get in the way of what travelers were seeing and hearing at the border. They thought that if you allowed people to Dialogue um, with other people at the border, they would start to think new things. Travelers would think new things, and eventually they would want to act and do something about those things. But that first step in the process, that C process, is what led to uh, what I call whack a mole. So this, uh, this organization went to extremes to tell travelers that the organization itself was not the font of expertise. This is really important in kind of um, liberatory pedagogy that comes from the movement background I explained earlier. They really wanted to make sure that they weren't bringing people to the border just to sit them down and tell them what to think. Um, The problem was, is that people were coming to the border, They'd taken time out of their lives and paid a, a nice little chunk of money to come and try and learn as much as they could. And a lot of these people are young people, are college students, or college age. And so they keep kind of asking over and over again for more explanation or deeper explanation, particularly from the English-speaking staff members. This organization employed both English and Spanish-speaking staff members as a part of its binational identity. And so I felt like I kept seeing the trip leaders kind of try to whack the mole of requesting their opinions or their expertise and try and refocus travelers um, towards a different, uh, away from themselves um, to to kind of see for themselves and to ask for themselves but not ask the trip leaders. Um, And it was sometimes a painful thing (laughs) To witness, especially maybe as, um, as a co- budding college professor who, who felt like I had lots of not just opinions but lots of knowledge about the US Mexico border and about what travelers were seeing. And so it was sometimes difficult to see these uh, trip leaders uh, that were employed by the organization keep saying "No, I'm not going to give you my opinion or no, I'm not going to tell you the story right here. I want you to, to discover it for yourself." Yeah.
0: So then, the next cultural fracture is what um, around the issue of being real people or authenticity. So I was hoping you could explain more about what you meant by testimonial economy.
1: Yeah, sure. So what um, what many kind of democratic educators um, and kind of liberation oriented educators uh, what they talk about wanting to do is to connect people together into dialogue with each other. And part of the idea, um, which is a fascinating democratic idea, is that if you can actually encounter and talk to people who have a radically different experience of your own, that you might be able to um, learn from those people and change your thinking. Um, So in this case, travelers, to maybe hear from migrants or hear from people who live in poor communities on the border to actually take in what they say um, and kind of change their thinking. The problem, as I lay out in the book, is that an organization like BorderLinks, they're not just doing this one time for one group of uh, students that come from one university for one week. BorderLinks has been doing this for years, again and again and again week after week. And this is true for almost any civil society organization that hosts people from a developed world country to travel to a developing world country. In the background, there's this huge amount of organizational work that goes on to try and recreate this dialogue experience again and again. But to do this, I, I note that the organization basically kind of ends up creating a testimony economy, which is basically a structure of people that it can go to again and again to engage in these sorts of dialogues with travelers that just come for one week at a time. It's really hard for an organization to do this again and again. If you just think about it practically it's basically the organization asking people to give up their time and energy to tell their story over and over again, which is kind of exhausting, right? And so what happens is they end up talking oftentimes to people who are not the idealized perfect people to share their experience. So they turn to maybe a clergy member or maybe a labor union organizer. Or maybe the director of a soup kitchen uh, in the Tucson area that serves migrants. And so they kind of move towards different voices um, who end up spending a lot of time with the travelers. And not only that, but uh, this organization is so kind of process oriented that they want travelers to hear, quote, both sides of the story. So the organization, they would call the Border Patrol or they would call the Customs Office or they would... Um, call the local attorney's office and they would ask um, those offices to come and talk with the travelers and basically give other viewpoints about what's happening at the border. When they did this, though, um, it was often the case that these speakers had really eloquent, powerful arguments that were um, given in a different voice than the kind of first-person testimonies that migrants or people living along the border might give. And so in some ways, these folks, though they were important for giving information to travelers, they could um, somewhat easily sway or eloquently sway the viewpoint, a certain viewpoint of the border for these travelers. Yeah.
0: So the last cultural fracture you speak about is what you call the heart knowledge processor. So can you explain that more?
1: Yeah. So that was... um, a, a kind of wild term that I tried to use to define what I saw happening on the trips over and over again. So when I was studying the organization, um, it was very focused on two things: what it called raising awareness, awareness, and and the other um, plank, which it called inspiring action. What I noticed through traveling um, with groups, though, is that the organization was pretty vague and what it meant by action, and what action would look like for travelers when they got back home. Now, this makes sense when you think about it, Um, but I didn't anticipate it, and the organization struggled with it a lot. And the reason why it makes sense is, A, the organization was kind of in this new political environment, and it was still trying to understand what was happening. B, the organization really always wanted to be careful to not look too political because if it did so, it might not get the same travelers coming. And it thought, partly incorrectly, that it might lose its nonprofit status if it advocated too clearly. And then finally, the organization, they had travelers from all over the country on any given week. And so they often didn't know the local context that travelers were going back to. So what ended up happening is instead of telling people what to do, the organization spent a lot of time trying to get people to feel what people think they should do. And they had a number of activities where they kept over and over again coming back to the language of the heart. And and they would say, don't get lost in your head don't be overwhelmed by the facts and the arguments, but go to what you feel and try to find what you're being called to or what you feel responsible for given the limits of your life. And this often, I felt, kind of released some of the pressure too easily on travelers. Almost gave travelers kind of a, a way out from asking more difficult questions of what their own political power was and what they could do in terms of advocacy when they got back home. And and my hunch in the research was that this focus on the heart and processing the heart actually had the potential to turn the trip into too much of a, a kind of experience that was powerful and not tie enough to what should be the responsibility coming out of this experience. And I see this even uh, in my own uh, work, when I see people go on, students go on alternative spring breaks, you talk to them and they say, you know what, it was so powerful. Uh, and I'm coming back to to share the story or to share the feelings I had. And I always think that that's a powerful part of these trips, but it's not the only part. Uh, and, and my hope in writing the book was to encourage people who like these trips to think more concretely about how they might direct, help travelers be directed uh, into what they could do in terms of advocacy.
0: So then in the second part of the book, and you sort of alluded to this with what you were just talking about, um, that you move on to what exactly these immersion travelers experience. Yep. So the first thing is, is what exactly are these people doing all day?
1: <laughs> yeah. So I, that's a cheeky chapter title. It says, What Immersion Travelers Feel All Day. Um, which is a play off of the old uh, children's book by Richard Scarry, What Do People Do All Day? That's where that came from. Um, and I, what, what was fun about writing these chapters was uh, I, in my research, I mentioned that I had had a form that travelers filled out right at the end of their trip. And the form was preloaded with the list of activities, the roster of activities that they were going to do from the week. And most of these activities kind of recurred uh, for each group, but what was neat was I was able to build a data set that not only showed what types of activities travelers did but I was also able to ask them on that forum on the last day of their trip how they felt while they were doing uh, those activities um, and then I was able later with this data set I built to kind of categorize how people spent their time um and I Uh, What I was able to show is they basically spent time doing a couple different things. And what I called talks, which is actually uh, hearing from clergy or or Border Patrol uh, officials, what I called interactions, where they actually spent time on a home visit or a home stay, um, spending the night in a poor neighborhood in a Mexican city or visiting with immigrants at an immigrant shelter, either north or south of the border. Or they would do something called um, viewings, where they, for example, might drive through um, a neighborhood of factories in Mexico, where they might view a deportation uh, proceeding um, in a federal court in Tucson, Arizona. Or finally, they might do what I called simulations, which is where they kind of play acted as if they were an immigrant to see what that experience uh, was like. And um, that chapter of the book spends a lot of time focusing on which out of all of these things actually seem to make travelers feel different in terms of sorrow or in terms of anger. Both of those emotions being important emotions in the study of social movements. There's some feeling that sorrow might depress action, that anger may actually encourage action. And what I found was that um, travelers, they, they enjoyed or, or were kind of glad they got to do basically every most things they did during the week. But they especially liked hearing from people who they would never meet as well as hearing real strong opinions. And a couple of the, the most powerful talks uh, from uh, the data that I was able to see was were these kind of professional activists Like a leader of the Sierra Club or a leader of a local immigrants' rights organization, who would come and speak to the travelers and really problematize what they were, and really and uh, tell them it was their moral responsibility to do something different when they got back home. And travelers seemed to be really affected by that in terms of kind of the levels of anger they had. Whereas slightly differently, when travelers would Interact with migrants, they really liked the chance to do that, but they often came away feeling more sorrow, and, and especially when they would view deportations, they would oftentimes have a lot more sorrow out of that activity. So one of the conclusions of that chapter was that, wow, when people go on these immersion trips, the the different activities they do can really matter in what they hear as well as what they feel, and it it seems plausible. That those, um, that kind of building up certain types of emotion can matter for how these trips matter for people down the road.
0: And building off of that idea in the next chapter, you actually start with a quote from a participant who had just gone on one of the desert hikes that you talked about. And this participant says, I feel solidarity and other things we've done, but then we were really walking where the immigrants walk. So can you explain this more?
1: Yeah, so this was something. This is one of the great joys of um, qualitative research, um, is uh, what's what's been called kind of the moment of abduction for the researcher, which is kind of a way of saying the aha moment for a researcher when they see something they never expected they might see, and when it gives deep insight into what they've been studying. And uh, I never went into these trips thinking that the desert hikes would be so important and so different than other things that travelers did during these trips. So almost every group that came to Borderlands at some point would take about a half a day and they would be with a guide um, and they would walk on migrant trails in the desert. Um, The very trails that migrants would be walking through at nighttime, the groups would walk through at daytime. And you would get this incredible sense of the, the forbidding danger of the desert, how little water there was, how little good shade cover there was, how many thorns there were, how, how slippery the soil was. And what I noticed just after a couple of trips is that this desert hike would be often the most powerful experience for travelers. And, and my uh, survey data backs that up. And I kept coming back to like, why would that be? because it doesn't quite make sense. If you remember, these organizations, they especially value the chance to come and explore and to talk with people and to meet actual people who live in distant places and maybe suffering. And organizations like BorderLink think that that sort of talk is the most powerful way to affect people. But um, I noticed that the desert hikes seemed to have a much more long-lasting and really kind of clear sense of clarifying for travelers what undocumented immigration was about, and it's notable that this kind of comports with the old saying of just walk a mile in somebody else's shoes. You know, it really aligns with that. There's there's kind of a, a sociological wisdom in that. But what I do in this part of the book is I spend time kind of comparing the difference between talking to people and walking a mile in their shoes and trying to understand for cultural sociologists why these two different processes of learning would lead to such different results in terms of feeling and thinking. Uh, and this ends up being the title of the book, uh, Empathy Beyond Borders, because there's been a real explosion, an upsurge in empathy research. Uh, especially outside of sociology in the last decade. And in this chapter, I use some of that that psychology research about empathy to think about the different processes, uh, cognitive processes that go on in people and why a desert hike would have such a powerful experience for them.
0: Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, um, and cool. this le- yeah, and this leads into the next chapter, which um, authenticity seems to come up a lot throughout yeah. your book. And you notice that sometimes folks think that these testimonies that people give are authentic, while others don't think that they are so. And then there's even differences between the groups and, and what they experience. Yep. So I like that you sort of talk about what you call guided unsettled unsettledness. Mm-hmm. So I was hoping you could tell us more about that.
1: Sure. Yeah. And, and this is a chapter where I spent more time kind of showing how different uh, types of groups, so groups from different types of institutions, uh, how they experienced the exact same thing. Because I would see this happen because I was traveling with these groups. And what I found was that uh, groups that tended to come from from religious institutions, so this would be like seminaries, churches, or on occasion, uh, religious colleges, these groups would um, bring a very different way of interacting with immigrants. They would tend to really focus on personal story of immigrants and would focus on the emotions and the future of their own personal story. So they kind of would put themselves into the narrative, if you will. Whereas groups from what I call secular institutions, so this would be like, for example, a sociology class um, from a state institution. They would they would come in much more as sleuths, kind of detectives, a little bit suspicious of everybody they met, knowing that whoever they talked to might have kind of a, a line or opinion that they were trying to get across. And so they kind of held their emotions a little bit more at, at arm's length uh, than the groups from religious institutions. And I found this interesting. It's the sort of thing you can only see if you do your um theoretical uh, setup correctly if you set up your your data collection in a way that you make it possible to see these contrasts and then I tried to understand it and what I found was that these immersion trips you know they're they're kind of curious um, people act as if they're 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 transformative but why would any institution send somebody somewhere on a trip if it was going to be radically transformative Because if that was the case, A, you might lose people from your institution. Students might drop out. People might leave your church. They might be going to find some uh, different way to live their truth. Um, And so I realized that these trips were a form of unsettledness, which is really important for cultural sociologists because we think that unsettled space and time can be a creative space and time. And what I realized is that these, the the unsettledness of immersion trips is guided, and it's guided by the groups that people come with. Most of the groups that come to Border Links, the travelers don't know each other well, but they're all from the same institution. And so the background of the institution, for example, whether it's religious or not, has this invisible effect that kind of drives the way that travelers go through the trip. And importantly, it kind of keeps them from falling through a floor of, of desolation or wondering about who am I and what do I do in the face of what I've seen. It allows them to kind of come back to an institution they knew before and to have some ways of thinking about and answering the questions they've encountered. Yeah.
0: So you interview people after they've gone home. So what do you find after they go home?
1: What I find is that everybody reports something happened to them. So this is both, this is like great for people that support these trips. For for a social scientist, you raise your eyebrow, right? You're like, wait a second. There's got to be some variation on the dependent variable here, right? So basically, what I find is that there are lots of ways that trips, especially the trips I studies, might affect people. But what you have to do very quickly is you have to pay attention to what stage of life travelers are in. Um, You have to pay attention to whether they knew anything about kind of immigration politics before they came. And finally, you have to pay attention to the type of um, group leader that went with them on their trip. And so what I find um, in in accord with a lot of social movement research is that young people, people who kind of aren't into careers yet, have a lot more flexibility about what the trips might lead to in terms of their future. I also find um, that those people who don't know anything about immigration um, can be really gobsmacked and are much more likely to say that their life is very different now. Because they had a lot further distance to travel, kind of attitudinally or emotionally. And so their experience is one of much more kind of radical transformation. And then finally, I found that groups that had leaders with them, so uh, this is especially clear to me, professors, who basically treated these trips as a consciousness-raising class. And would not let their students land on easy answers and would not let their students go back to their homes and just wipe their hands of what they've seen. I find that people that traveled with leaders like that were much more likely to really still be puzzling and worrying about the moral implications of the trip long after the trip um, than people who traveled uh, with leaders that, that didn't do that sort of kind of ideological work in the moment of the trip. Um, so I, I'm hopeful about uh, the, what I saw. And I think I've tracked some change. It's not the perfect research designed to do that. You know, I didn't have a control group despite trying to have one. But I think I found some good evidence that these trips uh, focused people more on immigrants, made them more emotionally attuned to immigrants, made them see the um, kind of political realities more, and made them more willing to attune like, their, their news and their consumption um, towards a uh, topic of immigration. Which, you know, lo and behold, years after I did this research, is still a central topic in American political life.
0: So you end your book on the possibilities and problems of immersion travel. So what were your main takeaways?
1: Yeah, so my main takeaways was that... Um, Immersion travel is not going anywhere. It's not going to stop, um, partly because of a globalized world, but also partly because of the idealization of um, global citizenship in terms like that. You see that even in the institution I teach in now, where there are these values of global engagement. Not a lot of questions asked about what that means. And I had some, su- some suspicion uh, about kind of, Uh, global consumption that that happens through travel all over the place. But immersion travel is not going away. And since it's not going away, uh, what I wanted to use this chapter to do was to think about how best might it be done. And I think um, that there needs, uh, I have a couple of takeaways. One, I think there needs to be a lot more awareness by organizations that send travelers that the organizations that support travelers when they're traveling, like Borderlinks, do an insane amount of background work that travelers are almost never aware of. For example, the homestays that that Borderlinks set up for their travelers, those homestays happen because the organization pays families to host people. When travelers found this out by accident, they were oftentimes really repelled by that because it seemed to kind of commodify this personal relationship they thought they were having with these families. But if you just think about the families that do homestays, they're always looking for sources of income and they're opening their lives to people. Shouldn't that be something that should be supported and visibly and publicly thanked? So I encourage more kind of public awareness within these travel groups, of what it actually takes to pull immersion travel off. Secondly, I encourage more of a reality check about how um, interactions happen between uh, people who might be powerless, like undocumented immigrants, and travelers who come in and want to listen. I think um, these trips could do a better job of, uh, of making those interactions work and making travelers come away from interactions with a much more coherent idea uh, about the realities um, of the lives of people who live uh, in these situations. At the same time, I also think that groups could could give more thought to embracing simulation. You know, if simulation works, uh, then then at one level there might even be immersion travel that doesn't need to happen. And I witness uh, simulation occurring all sorts of environments now. Um, in the, the big Davos meetings that happen every year in Davos, Switzerland, that elites go to, corporate elites and government elites, one of the most popular programs they do is a immigration refugee simulation where people spend a day. Uh, and, we, and some people are very critical and can laugh at this idea, but where um, people spend a day kind of going through simulations of what it's like to try and be a refugee in the world today. And I think um, researchers should attend more to what this sort of simulation uh, actually might uh, might be able to do to people in a good way in terms of awareness raising. Uh, and then finally, I think immersion uh, travel needs to be much more coherent about um, the nature of global life today and the processes that drive global inequality and global violence. It's very easy for a university, for example, to lay out a menu of, these are all the sorts of places you could go and you'll each have your own unique experience. I think that's not the best way to go. I think instead, um, all of those experiences should be part of some sort of education, either curricular or co-curricular about the, the globalness of the processes behind each of these trips. And then when travelers return, there has to be co- more coherent ways for them to know the different types of action, whether it's advocacy or not, but nonetheless, the different types of action that are possible coming out of the trips. And then for sociologists, heck, I think immersion travel and travel in general, especially for cultural sociologists, is this fascinating place to understand how meaning works, um, how um, ideals like citizenship or transformation or responsibility, global responsibility matter. I think this is really fertile place to see that play out.
0: So today I've been talking with Gary Adler about his new book, Empathy Beyond U.S. Borders, The Challenges of Transnational Civic Engagement, so what are you working on now? Uh,
1: I'm I'm not working on the book anymore, which is great. I'm promoting it uh, and still thinking a little bit about empathy. But I've, I've shifted somewhat, uh, which I don't think it's a huge shift, but it might sound like it. I'm basically studying how uh, church-state interactions happen on the local level in the United States. So it's still a topic that um, is about religious organizations. And it's still about how things kind of happen on the ground and how meanings work. Um, but it's, of course, slightly different than the venue of immersion travel. One way to think of my new research is I want to understand the phenomenon of Kim Davis. She was that county clerk for, that got a lot of news coverage a couple of years ago. I want to understand what happens in all the other localities in the United States, not the Kim Davis's where there are these big symbolic um, and, and um, kind of advocacy actions against government doing certain uh, duties. I want to know how those conflicts get avoided uh, and w- how they're kind of prevented before they become conflicts and what sort of negotiations happen between public officials and religious groups on the ground. So that's my new project.
0: Cool. Sounds really interesting. So thanks again for being with us today, Gary.
1: Thanks a ton, Sarah. I really enjoyed it. I know I've probably talked more than I should have, no,
0: uh, no. but
1: I, I really appreciate the opportunity <laughs> to speak about my uh, research and and hopefully some people will find it useful.
0: Great. Thanks again.
1: Bye-bye.